of our lives that your spirit would take this word and apply it and make a difference in the way that we think and live and feel. Help us to love the Lord our God with all our heart and soul and mind and strength. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's another Psalm of Asaph. We have a whole string of these here. And Psalm 76 is one that is a Psalm of Asaph, a song. And so once again, the emphasis is made that this is for singing. It's to the choir master, and we're not given the name. There's no tantalizing name of the tune. Rather, we just know that it's to be sung to stringed instruments. And so... It stands before us as a testimony to public performance and public singing that would remind the people of God of His past protection and blessing. But what was the historical occasion on which this was particularly written? It's general enough on one level that that it can apply to a lot of different situations down through the history of Israel up until the time that Asaph would have been writing. But there's one time that stands out like a Mount Everest, and probably it's the most likely occasion on which uh, this particular passage uh, was inspired and written. The Greek Septuagint has an abiding um, testimony to this fact. The Greek Septuagint title, the Greek translation of this particular psalm, Uh, that was uh, done for literary reasons to make sure that all of the civilized world was familiar with the scriptures of the Lord our God. The Greek Septuagint used by the Apostle Paul and the other disciples in their public teaching and preaching ministry, it adds one other line to the title. It says, concerning the Assyrian. Now that little phrase, concerning the Assyrian would have rung bells for every hearer and every singer when originally written. They would remember the defeat of Sennacherib recorded in 2 Kings chapter 19 and also borne witness to in Isaiah chapter 37. You remember Sennacherib? He was the Assyrian king who surrounded Jerusalem and who mocked the Lord God of Israel even as he prepared for battle and sharpened his swords. He is the one who said to the children of Israel in Jerusalem, Do not let your God in whom you trust deceive you. Behold, you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all the lands, destroying them completely. Did the gods of those nations, which my fathers destroyed, did they deliver them? The gist here of Sennacherib's letter, which demanded the total and complete surrender of Hezekiah and of Jerusalem, the capital of Judea. So what was poor Hezekiah to do? He didn't have forces that matched the superpower of the day that was literally at his gates. How would he defeat such an enemy? He had no means. But Hezekiah loved the Lord and he went into the temple and he laid Sennacherib's letter out before the Lord his God. 
And we read in 2 Kings 19, beginning in verse 15, Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, O Lord, the God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, You are the God, You alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. And hear the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste to the nations and their lands and have cast their gods into the fire. For they were not gods, but the works of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore, they were destroyed. So now, O Lord our God, save us, Please, from His hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, the Lord, are God alone. And God did. God did save His people. Isaiah sent word to Hezekiah, Thus says the Lord, because you have prayed to me about Sennacherib, king of Assyria, I have heard you. And not only did God hear, but God answered. And he answered as is so often his habit, with a combination of word and deed. Of a word from the Lord and a great act from the Lord. You see... In a fallen world, actions are really hard to interpret. Did you clean your room out of loving obedience to mom and dad when they said, hey, it's looking like a pigsty in there? Or did you clean your room spotless, even able to pass the white glove test because you were angry and you resented them and you said, I'll show them. You know, in a fallen world, you can't tell. Or maybe you were arrogant. I'm better than everyone else in the family. I'll pass the white glove test. Just in case you wonder, I I don't own a pair of white gloves. And my wife may own a pair of white gloves, but I haven't seen them recently. I don't commend that as a parenting style. If you have questions about that, then then you can go to, to Bob Stacy's Sunday school class on on family God's way, and and He can help you. But it's hard. It's hard to interpret a fallen world or life in this place. And so that's why God is merciful in giving us a combination of word and deed. He does mighty acts and He interprets them for us that we might understand who He is and what He's doing. And who we are and what we need to do. Oh, Second Kings chapter 19 goes on and we are given God's view of Sennacherib and God's view 
of what he was getting ready to accomplish. This, verse 21 of 2 Kings 19 says, This is the word that the Lord has spoken concerning him, Sennacherib. She despises you. She scorns you, the virgin daughter of Zion. She wags her head behind you, the daughter of Jerusalem. Now, guys, this is not good when a girl does this to you. And so the Lord is poking Sennacherib back. Whom have you mocked and reviled? Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted your eyes to the heights? Against the Holy One of Israel. By your messengers, you have mocked the Lord. And you have said, with my many chariots, I've gone up to the heights of the mountains, to the far recesses of Lebanon. I felled its tallest cedars, its choicest cypresses. I entered the farthest lodging place, its most fruitful forest. I dug wells. I drank foreign waters. I dried up with a sole of my foot the streams of Egypt. This is a fancy way of saying that Sennacherib boasted that he was a really powerful and cool kind of guy. Have you not heard, God responds, that I determined it long ago? I planned from days of old what now I bring to pass that you should turn fortified cities into heaps of ruin while their inhabitants shorn of strength are dismayed and confounded and have become like plants of the field, like tender grass, like grass on the housetops, blighted before it's grown. But I know you're sitting down and you're going out and coming in. The Lord is speaking very firmly to this mocking one. And you're raging against me because you have raged against me and your complacency has come into my ears. I will put my hook in your nose and my bit in your mouth and I will turn you back on the way by which you came. The Lord goes on to give a little detail about, in symbolic fashion, how this is going to happen and how it is sure and true. His words of judgment against Sennacherib and his upstarted attitude towards the Lord are words that bring a response that is an encouragement to Israel. Israel is told to stand by and watch the salvation of the Lord. Now, I'm not saying necessarily that Psalm 76 was composed with Asaph standing on the ramparts of Israel and writing as these things unfolded before him. Perhaps it was a reflection. Perhaps it was a vision ahead of time. But that seems to be the Mount Everest event of which Psalm 76 speaks. It was penned about a great victory won by the Lord our God. And it first teaches us that God is great. 
God is great. He is known throughout the land. It opens by saying, in Judah, God is known. His name is great in Israel. From the north to the south, from the east to the west. You know, it's kind of like uh, this land is your land. This land is my land. And I name about half the states in the union. God is known all over. Is the first strain to come from the lips of the psalmist. And God is worshipped in Zion. The laser beam focuses right at the heart of the country. Not because Jerusalem's in the center, although it is, but, but because that's where the action is. On Mount Zion, that is the place which God has established as His dwelling place. And so we hear, His abode has been established in Salem, His dwelling place in Zion. And so we remember that God is the one who let Jerusalem grow and be built and then He took it over for His people that they might worship Him in that place. Oh, it is the place first of the tabernacle settling and then the temple being built. It's the place where God's Shekinah glory presence uh, was seen and felt and therefore it was the place to which the people were commanded to go and seek union and communion with Him. As they worshipped Him, they learned so much. They learned that they needed to come into His various courts with thanksgiving and praise. They learned the importance of sacrifice of a, of a lamb or a bull or a goat or a turtle dove, something identified with them and substituting for them in their sin. It's blood being shed. They learned about their uncleanness and their alienation from a holy God and their need of cleansing and the hope of salvation which alone they would have through the Savior to come. Oh, they learned about God. And they learned about our His Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. God was worshipped in that place because God is great. And also the psalmist reminds us in verse 3 that God is great because He defeats the weapons of war. There He broke the flashing arrows, the shield, the sword, and the weapons of war. And then there's a little shalah, a pause. You're to ruminate on that and think about it over and over and over again. Now, flaming arrows and shields and swords and weapons of war, those particular instruments at that day of waging war don't mean a lot to us. But if it talked about tanks and, and missiles and if it talked about aircraft carriers and planes in the sky and God breaking them and crushing them, well, if you want a picture of that, just go back to our nursery sometime and watch the kids playing and... Something very akin to that takes place. And you'll get a taste for the fact that God is not just a theoretical, religious, or philosophical concept. He is real. He is active. He is the sovereign God. And He can break the strongest instruments of men. And the psalmist also then sings to us that God is good. That God is good to His people. Verse 4 reads, Glorious are you, more majestic than the mountains of prey, 
The stout-hearted were stripped of their spoil. They sank into sleep. All the men of war were unable to use their hands. At your rebuke, O God of Jacob, both rider and horse lay stunned. God was good to His people because in their time of need, when surrounded by the superpower, ready to make a lesson of them for all the world to see, God stretched out His mighty hand and He protected them miraculously. He is the one who brought pestilence upon the enemy. He is the one because of whom they awoke and found death on every hand in their camp. And so they fled. Sennacherib ran all the way back home to Assyria where his own son struck him down as he worshipped his pagan and false god. Oh, God is good to his children by using his hand almighty against his and our enemies. And God is good to his people because he hushes the nations in fear. Verses 7 to 9 speak to us. But you, you, O God, are to be feared. Who can stand before you when once your anger is roused? From the heavens you utter judgment. The earth feared and was still when God arose to establish judgment. Now this is a part, a theme, a strand in the Old Testament which, which makes some folks very uncomfortable. They, they get a little queasy because the use of God's power and, and His mighty hand and the fear of the Lord are not popular things to talk about in our culture these days. But remember Jerusalem. She was the least of the cities and the nations. She was between great powers which down through the centuries had, had used the king's road and had come in and invaded and, and captured and plundered and killed with almost no restraint. And here was the great enemy of the north knocking on her door. And yet God loved her people so much that He protected her even from the proud Assyrian. And God is so powerful that He is even able to take the pride and the power of one like Sennacherib and turn it to His own good purposes and end. Yes, the a fallen world is a hard place to understand and interpret. But it's even more difficult for us to interpret because God is one who in this place has pledged Himself by His own name and by His own righteousness to save a people for Himself. And so His great covenant of grace is operative here. This is not the pit of hell. It is a place where great and unusual things are happening. It's kind of like sweet and sour chicken. There's a bite of this and a taste of that. And how you reconcile those two things leaves you in mystery and in awe. And so verse 10 says, Surely the wrath of man shall praise you. The remnant of your wrath you will put on 
like a belt. Now, this is not like one of those little stylish kind of things that my wife has hanging in her closet. These are stout kind of belts. These are belts from which you attach things like weapons of war. God is going to take full, functional, and useful advantage. He is going to take the wrath-filled power and hate of His enemies who mock Him and who speak of destroying Him and using His people as an example of their own glory and of their own greatness despised. And He takes that wrath of Sennacherib and He wraps it around Him and uses it for His own purpose and His own end. God says that the wickedness and evil of horrible men will serve Him and His eternal purpose. This means God's fairly dangerous. He's not a Barney-like figure. He doesn't come in bouncing and smiling. This is a psalm which speaks to us of the mighty hand of God and that He is irresistible. Even the anger of men in some strange way we cannot fathom ultimately serves His divine purpose. And so we remember the rightful admonition and teaching of our Puritan forefathers that God is the one who uses sin sinlessly. God uses the sin of national leaders and international figures and He uses it for His own glory and His own good. God uses sins of your neighbors and your extended family and and those at work who just seem to have it out for you. God uses their sin sinlessly in His divine power and purposes. Not to excuse them for their guilt, but rather He takes and bends their purpose and agenda to some good thing in your life better than you could achieve any other way. God uses sin sinlessly. Hear me carefully. Even the sin in your own life, even the rise of rebellion in your heart, the doubting in your mind, the quick flare of anger in which you desire to push back God and His people, God uses even your sin sinlessly because He is sovereign and powerful and He can work in the heart and life of His child to a good end in spite of themselves. God is good. And so we're left before this psalm impressed that God is great and God is good but asking that most human of all questions, okay, Lord, okay, Asaph, what shall we then do? How should we respond? The tail end of the psalm speaks to us of this matter. Uh, Many years ago when my children were young, and and if you want to understand really what's happened in professional or academic interest to each one, this 
This may really open the door, the book of understanding for you with our children. Uh, We were all sitting around the family uh, living room, around the, the American hearth, the television, and one of my children suggested, I think it was not on a Sabbath day, but maybe it was on Saturday night in preparation for Sabbath the next morning. One of my children, in a, in a height of spiritual fervor, said, maybe we should give TV up for a month for God. Fearful of the consequences of this in my home, I said, now, are you sure God wants us to give up Stargate one for an entire month? Rather than broad, vague, you know, television, this or that, I, I, I put my finger right on their favorite television program, Stargate one. You all know Stargate one? You have collected the DVD set and you watch these with great fervor, I think. Well, our family did. But maybe we just need to change the item. Maybe you're not hooked on, uh, well, I won't go through the figures. But but maybe it's red meat. Maybe what you need to do is give up red meat on Fridays and and eat only fish then. Or maybe you should give up coffee and tea. Set those to the side and and bring glory to God in that way. Or, Or maybe you should respond to God's goodness and God's greatness by giving up some money. You know, send it into a TV preacher. He'll make sure you get $100 back later at some undisclosed time. As we are faced with God's greatness and God's goodness, and as we are faced with our hearts asking that most human of all questions, so what do I do? We face a fork in the road. We can either respond to God's goodness along the lines of biblical preaching and teaching which He discloses to us in His Word, Or we can respond in whatever way suits our fancy and whatever charms our hearts and whatever appeals to us the most. Will we appeal or respond to Him in the ways and means that He's commanded? Or will we kind of make it up as we go? Which will it be? I would submit to you that the psalm here teaches us that we should give God His due that we should give Him what He wants, that we should give Him back what He asks for in His Word. Verse 11 tells us, Make your vows to the Lord your God and perform them. Let all around Him bring gifts to Him who is to be feared. But parallelism between the two parts of this verse is clear. They're parallel sentences talking about exactly the same thing. Fulfilling our vows in worship to God. God's people needing to respond to His mercy by bringing a gift in worship, by bringing praise and thanksgiving that are reflective of the joy of the Holy Spirit in our heart and life, worshiping Him as He has appointed in tithes and sacrificial offerings to demonstrate our thanks. Not in ashes on the forehead, not incense in the nostrils. These are not ways that God in His new covenant teaches us to honor Him and to worship Him. Rather, we give Him what He's commanded and we come before Him with a sacrifice of praise and with the obedience to all His holy will. You see, verse 12 tells us that He is the one who cuts off the spirit of princes and who is to be feared by the kings of the earth. 
We must fear and serve, not men, but fear and serve the Lord. He is the one that the kings should and will indeed fear. And He is the one that kings should and indeed in spite of themselves do serve. And so, the psalmist leaves us wondering, asking and facing the question, will we give Him His due? By His grace, He has given us His Son. And by His mercy and kindness and by the power of His Spirit, we seek to be like His Son and so give Him all our lives. Not as suits us, but as suits Him. Let us pray. Oh, our Father and our God, we do ask for Your blessing upon us that we might see and know and hear that You are the great and good God who saves. Help us to be like Jesus in these things we pray and to honor You even according to Your will and word. And we'll give You all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.